Good morning. If you have your Bibles, uh, you want to turn to Philippians 4, 4 to 7, where we're going to learn about joy, which has nothing to do with taking your hands out of your pockets. Uh, Joy, thankfulness, and prayer. Let's ask God to uh, guide our time. Father God, uh, I do agree with Jeff that our posture matters, our hearts matter, our attitudes matter. May we have hearts that rejoice, hearts of joy, hearts of thanksgiving, hearts of prayer. Father, we ask that you would take this passage, that you would apply it to our lives, and that we would be impacted by your inspired and errant word for your glory and our necessary betterment. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. About a week ago, we commemorated the horror of World War I. World War I was a bloodbath with about 20 million soldiers who died, another 21 million soldiers wounded, and countless others who were not part of the war event but were impacted by war. During that time, because of such a large casualty rate, it became necessary to rush potential officers through officers' candidate school. And so there was a young second lieutenant named John. He was one of those guys that looked like a mama's boy. He had puffy cheeks, looked like no razor had ever touched his cheek, high-pitched voice. He was that kind of a guy, (laughs) and uh, he was rushed through candidate school, and then he was assigned to a group of battle-hardened soldiers, guys who had already been to the front, who had already served a tour and was now serving a second under this young second lieutenant. And so the first time he got together with his men, they all lined up, he looked them over, and then he turned his back to them. One of the guys then cited Isaiah eleven six with a loud voice, and a little child shall lead them. He immediately turned back around angered, knowing that it was an insult. He said, the man that said that, I want to speak up. Who said it? Silence. He looked at them all, glared, and said, I'm telling you, the man who said that, two steps forward. And in unison, all of his men stepped forward. John knew that he had been beaten, and he seethed with anger. The next morning, when his group got up, there was a notification on the board, and it said, Company C, in full battle fatigues and with your packs, meet at 1,300 hours for a 25-mile hike, and a little child shall lead them sitting on a big horse. He had taught them a little bit of a lesson. He had found the silver lining. He had found a little bit of joy in the midst of his difficulty. Today, you and I are going to talk about joy, but not joyful revenge like John. We're going to talk about joy from a biblical point of view, a settled confidence, a belief in Romans 8.28, where Paul writes, and we know, we're not hoping, we're not thinking, and we know 
that all things work together for good for those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. As I thought about that, I thought of a man named Little Faith. Little Faith is in John Bunyan's allegorical classic, Pilgrim's Progress. Have you guys ever read Pilgrim's Progress? Absolutely. It's a classic. Who hasn't? Yeah. You actually read it, Isaiah? Amy didn't read it to you? No. Was there a picture version? In fact, yes, Jeff, there is a picture. I just assumed that's the version you were talking about because that's what I actually read. It just showed the cover of it on the screen. So, But I have read it, yes. Well, for those who have read it, picture version or otherwise, little faith is on his way, as all Christ followers, to the celestial city. He's on his way to heaven. But in the midst of that, some rogues attack him. Rogues like guilt, faint heart, and mistrust. I hope those rogues have not attacked any of us. And he takes his eyes off of the prize, which is the celestial city, which is heaven. And he is encapsulated with guilt. He's encapsulated with a faint heart, with mistrust. And he allows the circumstances, the trials, the tribulations, the tempests, the sickness, the accidents, he allows life's circumstances to take his eyes off of glory, off of God, and he no longer believes what Paul writes, that all things work together for good, for those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. He ceases to rejoice. He ceases to have a thankful heart. He ceases to pray. But Paul calls us to something otherwise. Let me pick up and read the verses that that Isaiah, Andrew, and I will look at today. Philippians 4, 4 to 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, with thanksgiving, let your prayers and supplications be known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. You and I notice right off the bat that we are given a command, karatai, rejoice. This isn't an option. This isn't something that we might want to do. It's in an imperative form. In fact, it's in an imperative form in the present tense. That's the iterative tense. That means rejoice yesterday, rejoice today, rejoice tomorrow, keep your eyes on the prize, regardless of the circumstances, regardless of the difficulties of life, rejoice. Now, I wonder if you and I were put on trial, would we be found guilty of a lifestyle of rejoicing? Would Highland as a church be considered a rejoicing church? God calls us, he commands us to have an attitude of rejoicing. Some Christ followers, some churches are known more for what we hate, what we stand against, what we are in opposition to, than to rejoice. Now, somebody might push back at this moment and say, yeah, this sounds a lot like compromise. 
No, it's not compromise. Remember what Paul said in Ephesians 6. He said we are at war, not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and forces of this dark world. Towards one another, Christ follower and non-Christ follower, we are to demonstrate love. The two greatest commands Jesus gave us in Matthew 22, 37 to 40, he said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, soul, and mind. And the second greatest commandment is likened unto the first. We should love our neighbor as we love ourselves. We are to exhibit an attitude of joy. These two scholars that I'm sitting with, in all sincerity, they exhibit lives of joy. And you set a good mark, a good model for the rest of us. Now let's clarify. Paul is not commanding an emotion. I think if he were commanding an emotion, we could push against him and say, hey, you can't command an emotion. But joyful, in a biblical sense, is not an emotion. It's a settled confidence. It's an assurance. It's a belief that in spite of the circumstances, in spite of accidents, in spite of sicknesses, in spite of downturns, in spite of trials and tempests, that God truly will work good for those who love God, who know Jesus as Savior, and those who are walking according to his purpose. One of the great theologians of the 20th century was a neoclassical scholar named Dr. Karl Barth. And he talked about Philippians as a defiant nevertheless. In this four-chapter short book, we are given the command to rejoice or be joyful 16 times. A defiant nevertheless, in spite of an accident, in spite of a sickness, in spite of an illness, in spite of a downturn, in spite of a trial, defiantly, nevertheless, we are called, you and I as Christ followers, to rejoice, to look for the silver lining to believe that God works all things together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. As you guys well know, this is part of a four-compendium prison epistle along with Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon. When we talk about a prison epistle, it's not Paul writing to prisoners. That would be great. It's Paul writing from prison. That's what a prison epistle is. Paul already told us in chapter 1, he's on death row. He doesn't know if he's going to live or die. He has no idea if he has next week here on earth. And yet 16 times he commands us to be joyful, to rejoice, not to be a downcast type of individual, but to celebrate. Understand, Paul is in Rome. He's not on easy street. He's not at Cafe Easy Street drinking a latte. And I know that you millennials, you like your lattes. I don't know what you're He's talking about. This, this is black coffee right here. In here. This is not. Only because they be knew clear. I was going to say that. <laughs> he is in a difficult time. But there is a defiant nevertheless. I will rejoice because I belong to Christ. Yeah, and thanks for, for sharing that, Jeff. And when we think about walking in this defiant nevertheless, you know, embracing joy, 
choosing joy in spite of circumstances, it seems that there is a response that occurs in our heart because of that. I think, I think the primary response that we have as believers in Christ, embracing joy, walking in this defiant nevertheless, is thankfulness. It's, it, it's followed with thankfulness. And as we progress through chapter 4, the, the verses that we read, we see Paul embracing this. So as we move from verse 4 to verse 5, Paul shares with the Philippian readers that their reasonableness must be known to everyone. So just as he commands them to rejoice, he commands them to be reasonable. And maybe the best English equivalent for this word would be gracious or gentle spirit. That, that's, I think that's what Paul's trying to embrace here. So a gentle or gracious spirit. So maybe a good example of what that would look like would be two young pastors being gracious and gentle with a senior pastor who's trying to take cheap shots in front of an audience for some laughs. Yes, when they go low, we go high, right? That's it. That, okay, that's gracious what, and that gentle. That illustrates the point. So thank you so much. Perfect. I could just stop preaching right now because that nails it perfectly. But... It, but it is that spirit, that gracious and gentle spirit um, that compels Christ's followers to remain resilient and thankful in any situation, even in unfair situations. It's that spirit, that gracious and gentle spirit that compels a Christ follower to rely on the perfect justice of God in areas of injustice. So rather than taking matters into our own hands, as we are prone to do at times or feel led to do at times, it's saying, I'm going to let my gentle and gracious spirit be known by allowing God to execute his perfect justice in whatever situation it might be. It is also a gentle and gracious spirit that replaces bitterness in one's heart with a heart of joy, a heart of gratitude. Um, so in, in addition to being joyful, Paul says, hey, let your reasonableness, your gracious and gentle spirit be known to everyone. It reminds me of a time when my oldest son, Noah, was on a Little League All-Star team uh, playing some baseball. And How many All-Star teams have you made? <laughs> I'm trying to listen. Stop Jeff, interrupting. Just Get out of here. Illustration. I just Please. Man, reasonableness be known to everyone. Isaiah, I would love to hear no. what you have to say. But remind, so let me back, get back to my story. My oldest son Noah was on a Little League All-Star team. And he was at the plate taking some batting practice. And, you know, the coach was, was laying in some liners to him. And uh, he had a few good contact hits, went to the outfield. They were doing some situational base running. Well, one of the pitches that he hit, he foul-tipped, and it went behind the backstop into the parking area where every one of the parents' cars were parked. And so all the parents are thinking the same thing. You're probably thinking it too. Did it hit anyone's car? Well, just to be clear, it did not hit my car. But it did hit the head coach's car. It landed right on his windshield. You saw the point of impact and how it's kind of spiderwebbed throughout the rest of the windshield. And immediately my heart was sinking. My, my son was visibly upset, like, I can't believe I just broke my coach's windshield. And so there's a lot of, it's, it's, it's high tension. There's a lot of emotions happening. And what struck me was the way the coach responded to us. Now, if it, if it was a, an unbelieving coach, maybe the response would have been different. Maybe it wouldn't have. But this coach, being a believer in Christ, he, he let his reasonableness, his gracious and gentle spirit, known to us, my son and I, by saying, hey, no problem. It's not a big deal. It's just a windshield. Why are you flipping out over a windshield? It's okay. It's repairable. It's fixable. It was, it was totally gracious and gentle how he responded to Noah and I. And so this is what Paul is encouraging. Let your gracious and gentle spirit be known to everyone. And as Paul transitions from, from that, he kind of addresses another topic that is not relevant just in the first century, but I think is also relevant in the 21st century as well. And that is the topic of 
anxiety. And Paul says in verse 6, he says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your, by, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And, you know, I recognize that there are many American adults who battle anxiety. So I want to interact with what Paul says very compassionately and very sympathetically. And so let me just say from the outset that I do think that there are appropriate times for worry and fear. You know, parents in the room, you're going to worry and have fear over your children, decisions they might make, maybe a career choice or marital uh, relationships, whatever it might be. You're, there's appropriate times for worry and fear. I think we can even see this in the heart of Christ. If we look back to Matthew 23, he makes a declaration over Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered your children in like a, a, a hen would her brood, yet you would not. He was genuinely worried and concerned about this city. This is not what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about appropriate times of worry and fear. He's talking about disproportionate anxiety that is sinful because it, it allows us to, to make decisions on our own instead of obeying or submitting to the authority of Christ. But, but, but notice what Paul says right at the end of verse 5 as he's getting ready to tackle the topic of anxiety. He says, the Lord is at hand, meaning the Lord is near. He is near. And, and I love this powerful truth that Paul shares because in the Greek, Paul is, sh is sharing that Christ is near, the Lord is near both in time and in place. So a, a couple of questions that might be raised after reading a text like this is, does Paul mean that Jesus is coming imminently, or does that mean he is near, like with me in presence? And, and the answer is both. The answer is both. He is coming imminently, and he is with us in presence. And so if we take an extended look at some of the Pauline writings, even in Philippians chapter 3, we see this is what Paul is saying, right? In Philippians 3.20, Paul says this, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul's implying, do not be anxious because the Lord is near. He is coming at any moment. His, his return is imminent. Now, Isaiah, you've, you've used that word imminent a few times, and that sounds like one of those big Bible theology words. What, what exactly yes. do you mean by Jesus' return is, is imminent? What does that mean? Yeah, great question. It's really a simple answer. It really means at any moment. So when Paul says the Lord's return is imminent or his, his presence is near, that really means that he could be coming 10 minutes from now, one year from now, a decade from now. It just simply means at any moment. So when he's communicating this to the Philippian readers, he says, hey, do not be anxious because the worries of life will soon be over. You will be in the presence of God at any moment. Dear brothers and sisters, do not be anxious. The Lord is near. Then he also implies that he's also near in presence as well in, time, in terms of space. That means for all believers, those of us that have placed our faith in Christ as Lord and Savior, that means his spirit is living inside of us. He is dwelling within us. And so we can say, you are here with me. You are here right now, right in this moment in my heart. Therefore, I need not be anxious because you are near. You are with me. Not only is your return imminent, but you are dwelling within me. So I can have a confidence in knowing that I can walk in defiant nevertheless because Christ lives in me and his return is imminent. And what I love about Paul is he's very practical. So he says, hey, if you want to walk with a defiant nevertheless, choosing joy, if you want to be thankful, if you want to maybe alleviate some anxiety in your life, there are two things I want you to put in your toolbox. I want you to have prayer in combination with thankfulness, thanks 
giving. That's what Paul says in the text. Now, prayer is kind of a big word, but I love how Paul uses it in conjunction with the word supplication. See, supplication is basically uh, a type of prayer where we are communicating a deep felt need in our life. It means we recognize as people we have certain things lacking in our heart that can only be filled by God's presence. And so in order for us to uh, have this in our life, we completely depend on the Lord. Now, God doesn't need to hear my prayer of supplication to answer that. But what happens is, is I'm communicating to God, I need you. I need you more than anything right now in my life. So picture an infant. An infant is completely dependent upon its parents. Right? It cannot feed itself. It cannot change itself. It cannot clothe itself. It cannot care for itself in any way imaginable. And so when we are praying with supplication, we are communicating, God, I need you. So we desire a joyful life. We need the Lord. We desire an anxious, free life. We need the Lord. We want to live grateful lives. We need the Lord. And I love that when God is with us, we can approach him confidently. It reminds me of what Hebrews 4.16 says. When it says this, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Because of the nearness of God, we can approach him with confidence and, and, and with assurity that he will uh, bless us. He will lift us up out of our despair. And I love that you took us to Hebrews uh, chapter 4, verse 16, because in that verse, we see a unique pattern where we go to God with prayer, we go to him for help, and he responds, he supplies, he gives mercy, he gives grace, he gives help. And that same pattern we see in Philippians 4 today. As we go to God in prayer and supplication, God promises that he will respond and give us what we need. So let's think about that as we reread verse 7. It says this, this is the result, this is what God supplies. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And as we're focusing on this last verse, I think we get to the point, the big idea of what Paul's been hinting at. And it's this, if you want to be a peaceful person, you need to be a prayerful person. Prayerful people are peaceful people. Because it's showing a heart that's in full and total reliance on the Lord. Now, as we look at this verse, we need to be careful to see what it does promise us and also what it does not promise us, okay? So this verse does promise that God, if we go to him in trust with prayer and supplication, he will be faithful to give us strength, to give us peace, to give us an inner uh, tranquility, a calmness, a contentedness of heart. That's what the word peace is talking about. However, this passage does not promise that we will experience that peace because God is going to answer our prayer requests exactly as we ask them. God is not giving us a big blank check where he says, fill in whatever you want and I'm going to cash it for you. Our peace does not come from God doing things our way every single time. This verse is telling us that he will give us peace. He will give us comfort. He will give us strength to go through any circumstances. But the remedy is not God always doing it our way. And you know, it's, it's comforting to realize that because that reminds us that in those moments when I am praying to the Lord and maybe he doesn't answer it exactly as I would have hoped, that doesn't mean that God has left me. That doesn't mean that God has forsaken me. And that doesn't mean that God hasn't helped me. 
God says, even when the answer is no or maybe later, I'm still going to give you the peace necessary to face tomorrow. So even when someone unexpectedly loses a job, I don't have to be overcome with fear and anxiety. Even when a medical diagnosis is uncertain, I don't have to uh, immediately be overwhelmed with apprehension. Even when finances are tight, I don't have to worry and just sit and think of all the things I need to do. God says that he can still give me peace even in the midst of that difficult circumstance. And you know, this last month I was in Ethiopia, and I saw this principle exemplified so well by the, the men and women that I was, I was working with. So as they're working with a large group of Ethiopian missionaries, and many of them were facing difficult circumstances, but all of them were facing financial difficulties. In fact, the average salary for these missionaries, for their families, would be living on $72 a month. $72 a month. And when we hear that number, for us, that is unfathomable. Immediately, our minds race to all the anxiety we would be feeling, all the fear we would be feeling, all the things we'd have to try to plan and control. $72 a month, you know, what would I do without my uh, 401k? What would I do without my padded savings account that has six months of emergency funds if things go wrong? Our minds go to all these things that we put our trust in rather than God. But you know, that wasn't their response at all. When we asked them about these difficulties, they didn't minimize it. They didn't pretend like it wasn't there. They didn't say, uh, you know, that, no, we're, it's, they, they owned up that there was difficulties, but their response was, it's okay, God knows. It's okay, God knows. And there's a peaceness uh, and a tranquility in their lives. It's okay, God knows. And they were able to say that because they had truly understood Romans 8, 28, that God was working all things together for their good, and they knew that because they were called according to his purposes, and they loved him. Yeah. So, so, Jeff, I see you shaking your head a little bit. So, Andrew, I want to propose a test to, to, again, further illustrate this point. So I think we should take Jeff's monthly salary, minimize it to $72 a month, and see if at the end of the month he's still saying, it's okay, God. I think that'd be a very helpful case study for the church. I think so. I think that so. would be, yes. Yeah. So we'll check in on that next month. We'll talk to the elders after, <clears throat> yeah. So, but, exact, but think about that. That's exactly why a peaceful life is so difficult. Because... It's easy for us to shake our heads, yes, yes, oh, our brothers and sisters in Christ over in Ethiopia, they model this so well, we are so grateful for them, but when the spotlight turns to saying, well, how would you like that, we think, well, God, please let it not be me, right? Why? Because in those moments, it's easy to say, yes, 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 it's a lot harder to live it out. I think that's so because we are oftentimes self-dependent people. We want to be self-dependent people. Many of us are anxious because we think ultimately we're the ones in control of our lives. We think our plans are going to come to fruition. We think that we ha are the authors of our own destinies and we bought into that Hollywood worldview that what we want, what we desire, what we plan is going to be the trajectory for our lives. And simply stated, that's not a biblical worldview. God is the author of our destinies. We are not in control. And when we think we're in control, we're always going to be filled with anxiety. Think about this way. Here's a, a word picture for you. Uh, an anxious life of self-dependency is a lot like trying to ride a stationary bike. Okay, so it's a lot like riding a stationary bike. <laughs> 
So if you're riding a stationary bike, you can pedal as hard as you want. You can work out as much as you like. You can uh, work out and uh, sweat. And, but guess what? That bike is not going to move a single inch, no matter how hard you pedal. That bike is not going to move a single inch. Why? Because you don't have the ability to make the bike move forward. That's what anxious toil and restless thoughts are in our lives. We chew on all the scenarios. We chew on how we need to plan ourselves out of this where we don't have control. We're pretending like we're the ones in charge of our lives, that we're the ones writing our stories. We don't have that power. God is the one in control. And when we trust God and we're in full dependence on him, then we can begin to find peace. Because a peaceful life is a lot more like riding a tandem bicycle instead. It's a lot more like riding a tandem bike. <laughs> Thank goodness it's uh, not tandem, what are the walkers thing? <laughs> yeah. They're having way too much fun together. So a tandem bike is a bicycle with two sets of pedals, two seats, but one person gets to be in the driver's seat. In this picture, it was Pastor, I love, I love Pastor Tape. In the front. Yes. So the person in the driver's seat with the hands on the Are handlebars. there more of these to come? There's no more. <laughs> They're the person. I honestly had not seen that. <laughs> <laughs> they, are the, they are the person who gets to pick the direction, the person in the front seat. And that's what a, a peaceful life as a Christian should be like. We know that God's on the bike with us, that he's pedaling right there alongside of us, but we know that God's in the front seat. He's the one who gets to pick the pace. He's the one who gets to pick the course. But we know that God is working things together for our good. So even when the bike ride takes an unexpected turn, it takes a detour, it goes uphill, it's more rigorous than we anticipated, we can still be at peace knowing it's not outside of God's purview or his plan. It's okay. God knows. God is near and I can trust him. God promises that peace that we can have is tremendously powerful. In our passage, it says it will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And that word guard in the Greek has a military origin. It talks about a garrison that protects a city. And the church at Philippi would have been very, uh, very acquainted with this idea. As a Roman providence, there were uh, garrisons protecting this city. So that's the word picture God wants them to have. He puts peace in our hearts that's going to actively play defense against the circumstances, the difficulties, the fears, the spiritual warfare that tries to get us to fear and to no longer trust him. God promises that that peace is going to protect us. He'll give us the strength to remain firm in him. That's the promised peace, which is such a beautiful picture. And as we're, as we're wrapping up our passage this morning, I do want to add one qualifier to this verse. This verse is a rebuke to a sinful anxiety that comes from a heart that's refusing to submit to God's will. This is coming from a lifestyle where I'm on the stationary bike. I don't want to get off. I don't want to give God control. I want to try to be the author of my life. I want to control things. I, I don't want to give up and trust in him because I had a plan for my life. And I want that plan to unfold. Honestly, there are many Americans who struggle with anxiety for this reason. And if we're being more honest, there's a lot of Christians who struggle with anxiety for those reasons as well. But also, I want us to realize that there are a variety of root causes for anxiety in our lives. There are 
are many godly, mature Christians who are trying to trust in the Lord, who are getting on the bike, who are praying to Him, who are giving up the reins, yet still struggle with anxiety on a regular basis. And this passage is a rebuke to people that are sinfully choosing a lifestyle of rejecting God's authority. But as people who are physical, spiritual, and emotional, there are a variety of roots that can cause anxiety. So if, if you are someone who is trying to trust in the Lord today, I don't want you to feel beat up or wrongly accused by this text. This is telling us to repent of the areas where we're refusing to let God be God. And as we close out our passage, look at the last three words. It says, in Christ Jesus. That gives us the sphere in which we find this peace. It's only found within Christ Jesus. We can't find it anywhere else. This passage is telling us that a life that's not centered on Christ will not be marked by peace. And it should not be marked by peace. Because if we're not in Christ, if we don't have a relationship with Jesus, we're not at peace with God. We're not at peace with our creator. We still are not at peace because there's sin in our lives that has not been, been dealt with. So the path to peace first begins by accepting Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And then the path continues as we've seen in our text of choosing joy, of praying with thanksgiving, and then trusting in God's plan. Again, choosing joy is a defiant nevertheless. Again, let's think about Paul's context. He's writing from prison. He's writing from death row. He doesn't know if he has a week, a month, a day. He is uncertain. Think, though, even of his immediate context. His immediate context is chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. He talks about some church workers, some busy bees, some individuals who volunteer, who are kingdom-focused, but they can't get along. Their names are Yodia and Syntax. They're all about doing kingdom work, but they're also all filled with divisiveness and anger and malice and strife towards others. They've forgotten that Jesus calls us to joy. He calls us to love. He calls us to work together, and they're seething towards one another. So although they're doing kingdom work, they're far less effective than they should be, they've allowed these demons in their lives and they're not choosing joy. Their battle is not primarily against principalities, it's against flesh and blood. They've forgotten that Jesus said, choose joy, choose love, choose me, choose to forgive and show grace. And so as I think of this passage, I need to ask myself, Am I choosing joy, even in the difficult circumstances? Am I choosing joy during the trials and the tribulations and the tempests, during the accidents and the illnesses and the downturns? Am I choosing joy, a defiant nevertheless? And am I allowing relationships, even ones that I don't appreciate, am I allowing them to rob me of joy? I should not. I need to remember that God works all things together for good, for those who love him are called according to his purpose, and he calls us to relationship one with another, not to be robbed of that because of anger, 
but to choose joy. Yeah. And what a great reminder and a challenge for us to choose joy in spite of our circumstances, to choose thankfulness in spite of our circumstances, even reasonableness in spite of our circumstances, which reminds me, you know, Andrew, I shared about the baseball coach who, who acted so gracious towards me. Putting yourself in his position, how would you handle a situation like that? I, I really like my car, but I hope I would be able to respond the same way as the coach. Well, that's good because I have something to talk to you about after the sermon. Today. <laughs> um, but let me just share, uh, you know, one primary way I love to direct my heart to choose joy, to choose thankfulness in, in difficult circumstances. I love to read through the Psalms. You know, one of my favorite Psalms is Psalm 105, verses 1 through 3. And it says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Glory in his name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. What a powerful verse of scripture. I think anytime we turn to God's word, it just allows us to capture this heart of being joyful in spite of circumstances. And it just washes over our hearts. Isaiah, I believe that's a Thanksgiving psalm and a great one. As we approach Thanksgiving, do you have some other psalms that we can meditate upon that are Thanksgiving psalms? Yeah, absolutely. I think Psalm 107 verses 8 and 9 are uh, great passages of Scripture as well. It talks about how God satisfies us with good things. Psalm 121 talks about how our minds and hearts should be directed to the hills because our help comes from the Lord. Uh, Psalm 75 one talks again about the nearness of the Lord. So I think psalms like that that talk about God's goodness, his nearness, and how he satisfies us are all great psalms to dive into. Yeah. So as, as we're applying this passage this week, Jeff talked about choosing joy. Isaiah spoke on choosing thanksgiving. I, I have a third application I'd like to add for all of us. This week, let's work on choosing contentment. Choosing contentment. And how appropriate as we go into celebrating thanksgiving this week. Every fourth Thursday of November, we celebrate one day where we thank God for all the things that he has supplied us with. And then the other 364 days could rightly be labeled in our American culture, Discontentment Day. We live in a discontent society, and many Americans are very good at celebrating it every other day. Uh, Why is that? Well, it's because we live in a society where what we have is never enough. Our job, we never make enough money. Our, Our car, it's never new enough or nice enough. Our house, it's never large enough. Our wardrobe, it's never as flashy or up-to-date as we would hope. All these things in our life Wait a that second. we are... Just... I'm not dressed like Paul Bunyan for Christmas. Hey, tis, tis the season for a reindeer carnigan. That's Gentleness, gracious, reasonable spirits, men. Okay, so we're choosing contentment this week. And that's so important because a discontent heart will never experience peace because a discontent heart is showing that there is idolatry in my heart. Stuff is one of the most prevalent American idols. As long as stuff is an idol, I'll never be at peace because I'm trying to amass more of it and I'm trying to protect it. So the minute something infringes upon that, I'm going to lash out. I'm going to be anxious. I'm going to be restless. I'm going to be angry. We need to learn to be joyful and thankful regardless of our circumstances. I should be just as joyful in an entry-level position, a a dilapidated car, and a small studio apartment as I would be if I was the VP of the company or if I drove a brand new fully loaded SUV or or lived in a mansion. Our, Our circumstances should not dictate our joy. So what do we do this week? Three quick things. 
One, let's identify the idols. There's things that when I said, imagine earning $72 a month, you recoiled at. It's probably an idol. It's probably something that you're clinging to for joy and satisfaction. Two, we need to keep our eyes on eternity. We need to maintain an eternal perspective. Just as little faith was miserable in this life in Paul Bunyan's classic because... <laughs> John Bunyan, that's yeah. Paul Bunyan. Stop it. Is John that, Bunyan... I'll, the book. I'll loan you my picture book. You okay, John, it, yeah. So John Bunyan, little faith, as he <laughs> was experiencing difficulty because he took his eyes off of eternity, we need not make the same mistake. And then third, let's take off our American lenses of ungratefulness and realize this week just how much we have to be thankful for. Let's close in a word of prayer. Pray for Paul Bunyan. (laughs) Father, we thank you so much for this morning and this passage and the hope that's embedded within this passage that peace truly is attainable, but it's not attainable by uh, trying our hardest. It's not attainable by planning on our part. It's not uh, attainable by trying to pretend like we are in control of our lives. We find peace by submitting to your plan and learning to trust in you and your goodness and your faithfulness. So God, let our lives be marked by thanksgiving and trust this week. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Oh good, it's Jeff. Take your hands out of your pockets.